Today's scripture comes from uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. It says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. It is true, and it is given to us out of his love. You may be seated. Hey, we are in a, a mini-series, I guess is what you could call it. Um, we're taking a little bit of a hiatus here just to kind of pause, to take a deep breath maybe. Um, we're you know, we're right here in the summer. For some of you, that's a time that's refreshing. For others of you, maybe it's a time that's extra stressful. I don't know where you are this morning, but sometimes it's just good to step back from everything, take a deep breath, and worship, or remind ourselves of why we worship. And we're going to look this week and next week in two different psalms. The psalms is... You could think of it like a song book or a prayer book for Israel. And it helps us learn about what it means to worship, what it looks like to worship. We're going to do things a little bit differently in the sense that instead of having discussion all at the end, we're going to have discussion kind of interspersed throughout our time this morning. Um, but as we get into the Psalms, we're looking at Psalm 8 this morning, I want you to just have one thing in mind in particular, and that's that we're reading poetry. And when we read poetry, it's highly symbolic language, very symbolic. It was the author Robert Frost, I think, who said that the poet's task is saying one thing and meaning another. So it's so symbolic that you can't just take it literal and every, every time you read something. You have to understand what the author is getting at. And so I'm going to help us do that this morning as we look at Psalm 8. But I want to begin our time with a question. Have you ever wanted to make a name for yourself? You ever wanted to be great? You ever wanted to, you can actually take that off. Well, I'll come to it in a minute. Have you ever wanted to be celebrated by other people? I'm going to give you a little window into my soul this morning, and it, it, it's kind of a frightening thing, but along the way, you might recognize the view a little bit too. See, when I was young, I, I had a couple things in mind. I was going to be, I was going to be a great athlete. I was going to be a superstar, somebody who would probably be celebrated by other people for my just great exploits on the basketball court, on the football field. So I spent a lot of hours, lonely hours, during the summertime in the gym trying to perfect my skills in basketball. I spent a lot of time 
practicing football, working on passing, working on catching, working on the various skills. And as you can tell from this physique, I spent a lot of time in the weight room too. I mean, obviously, right? <laughs> Maybe not so much. Well, it turns out that fantasy is different from reality because instead of being this superstar in sports, I ended up on the sidelines. I ended up sitting down watching many of the games. When I was a senior in high school, I had freshmen playing in front of me. My dream, it turns out, would have to come from somewhere else. Unfortunately, I had another dream. My dream was, going, was that I was going to be a pilot. I was going to fly, maybe be a fighter pilot. I kind of grew up in the Top Gun era, so Maverick was really at the forefront of people in my generation. That's what we wanted to do. So I was going to be a great pilot, so I worked hard to get good grades that I needed to get in school so I could go to a good school that would set me up to get into the Air Force or the Navy, something like that, and, and become a pilot. And it turns out, again, that uh, reality is sometimes different from fantasy. And I was born being disqualified from flying. My eyes were not good enough coming out of the womb. So uh, being a pilot was not something that I was going to get to do. My dream, my, my celebrity, my name would have to come from somewhere else. The problem is, though, at this point, it's kind of out of dreams. I didn't really know where I would go next to make a name for myself. Well, here is where I want to take our first little pause. So I've tried to set up the topic. I want you to talk just for a couple minutes at your tables about have you ever tried to make a name for yourself? If you have a story that you can think of that comes to mind, you feel free to share it. Please do. Or if that's just too much of a personal question, then just go more generically with what kind of things do you see people doing to try to make a name for themselves? We'll talk for about three minutes, and then I'll give you about a 30-second warning, and we'll come back together. So go ahead, talk about that for a few seconds, or a few minutes, I mean, and then we'll be back. All right. Sometimes it, it can be kind of fun to talk about those silly things that we used to do to go after making a name for ourselves, those, those stories of who we wanted to be when we were younger. It's, it's kind of fun to look back on those years at times. But surely not now, right? I mean, surely we're not still wrapped up in that, are we? Surely we've, we've kind of moved on. We're past trying to make a name for ourselves, right? I don't know about you, but I can tell you about moi. <laughs> this defines my life in so many ways. I fight against this. I don't want to overstate it, but it's almost like a daily thing. That may not be overstating it. Who is my life going to be about? So often, it's, it's about me. Surely, though, you're not like that. But in case you are, we're going to look at Psalm 8 this morning because Psalm 8 talks about a name. And it's not your name, it's not my name, but it is the highest name, the most significant name in all the universe. Let's look at the text. We're going to go through here slowly together. So I'm just going to read the first part and then we're going we're to stop. So it starts off this way. This is a psalm that David wrote. And he starts off this way, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
So right away, the, the thing that's significant that's easy to miss if we're reading too quickly is the fact that David seems to be repeating himself in the way it's written in our Bibles. Oh Lord, our Lord. You've probably heard this before, but in case you haven't or you've forgotten it, when you see Lord in all caps like that, it's the personal name of God. It's Yahweh. It's that name that the Israelites referred to God as, but it's a name that they wouldn't even speak. They would only talk about the name. They wouldn't actually say the word Yahweh because it's too sacred to them. And Jews to this day oftentimes will not say that name still. But this is David saying, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. What's so significant about that personal name of God is that we believe fundamentally as a starting point for our faith that we can have a relationship with our God because our God has revealed himself to us. God is the, is the God who gives us his name so that we don't have to just simply refer to him vaguely as God. God is just a generic word that all kinds of people use. But we have something specific in mind when we talk about God, don't we? It is the one true God who we believe is God, who goes by the name Yahweh, or in our day, standing on this side of the New Testament now, we also have another name, don't we? We have the name Jesus Christ. We can call God a personal name because he has revealed himself to us. How incredible is that, that we could actually know God? Now, it doesn't mean we know everything about God, but we don't know everything about anybody. I don't know everything about my wife, but she's the person I know better than anybody else. But yet we can still have a great relationship because we know enough about each other. And it's something like that with God. We don't know everything about God, but we can still know enough to be in relationship with him. So David goes on and he says, how majestic is your name or magnificent is your name in all the earth. There's not a square inch of our planet where God's name is not majestic according to what David is saying here. It is majestic everywhere. It is mighty everywhere in all the earth. And not only that, but he has set his glory above the heavens. So the heavens being as far out as we can possibly imagine, and the earth being as close as we can possibly imagine, but still with that sense of its just massive size, God's name is great everywhere. There's no place where his name is obscure, where his name is not magnificent, where his name is not mighty. No place at all. Now think about this just for a second. Think about somebody you know whose name is pretty well known. Think about somebody who everybody in the room would, would be able to say, oh yeah, I know who you're talking about when you mention that person's name. Just think about that for two seconds. Now how many of you are thinking about someone's name who is alive right now? How many of you are thinking about somebody who died maybe recently? Okay, well, regardless of what it is, chances are that when we think of people's names who are famous now, people who have made a name for themselves now, most of those names probably will not be remembered 500 years from now. Most of those people's names probably are not known as well in other parts of the world as they are here. But God's name is not like that. His name is known everywhere. It's majestic in all the earth, every day, every age, and no matter where we go, his name is majestic. It is mighty. 
Not only that, but these words that David is using, when he's talking about majestic, when he talks about his, your glory above the heavens, those are words that are ascribed to a king. David is saying that God is the creator of all things, and he is the king of the universe. He is the creator and the king. Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But as king, God displays his power in some unexpected ways. Let's move on to verse 2. David says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, this verse is perfectly confusing. It, it's, it's hard to understand exactly what David has in mind here. But one thing that we know for sure is that when babies and infants are referenced in Scripture, it almost always has to do with them being victimized in some way. The babies and the infants are being victims. They're being oppressed in some form or fashion. And so when David says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, what comes out of the mouth of babies and infants who are being oppressed? It's cries. So God, in some mysterious way that I, I can't fully wrap my mind around, God is taking the cries that he's hearing of the most victimized, the most vulnerable people of our population, and he is hearing those. And somehow, he is using those cries to establish strength, to establish a stronghold, is another way we can think about that, against the enemy, against our foes. God somehow is working that out. He is hearing their cries. He is listening to them. You think about in um, Matthew 21, Jesus has just cleansed the temple. He's just turned over the tables. And then he begins healing people. He begins healing people, the lame and the blind, in the temple area. He's like, Jesus is saying, the temple is supposed to be the place where heaven touches earth. And that is the place where God's kingdom is here on earth. This should be a place of healing, not a place of buying and selling. So Jesus is setting that straight, and he is healing these people. And in the midst of that, little children are coming up, and they are praising Jesus. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Well, some people with powerful names are there to witness all of this. The chief priests and the scribes. And they hear what's going on, and they're telling Jesus, you need to rebuke these kids for what they're doing. And Jesus quotes this verse. He says, haven't you heard this verse about the babies, the infants, the little kids? Jesus cares so much about the most vulnerable people of our population. And in chapter 19, just two chapters earlier in Matthew, the disciples um, rebuke some people who are bringing children to Jesus. And Jesus rebukes the disciples. He's saying, no, let them come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Our God cares immensely about the most weak and vulnerable people of our society. We don't have to look far to see this in our world today, how, how children are being victimized. You go to the slide there, Dennis. Um, this is a picture that was just from this past week of the fighting in Syria. It's been going on for years now, and children are being victimized terribly in this. In fact, uh, one organization, World Vision, estimates that up to 19,000 children have been killed in the fighting in Syria the past six years. 19,000. Can't even wrap my mind around that. Up to 4 million people have had to flee Syria. Over half the population has either been displaced or has been killed. I can't even fathom what that 
would be like to be around. You can go to the next slide. It's a happier slide. Um, so the point is, Jesus cares about these cries. Jesus hears. Our Lord knows their oppression. He knows what they are facing. Now maybe there's, maybe there's a question, though, that comes to your mind, and it goes something like this. Okay, if, if God knows and he cares so much, then why are 19,000 being killed in Syria? I mean, is that something that maybe comes to mind as I say this? Something that comes to my mind. I, I, can't, uh, I can't give a full, complete answer to that. But I will say two things. Um, first of all, we have to remember that when the Bible talks about justice, when it talks about God's kingdom, it's talking about something that we still do not fully realize or experience today. It's something that's coming. God's final justice is not here yet. Someday we will see exactly what it means that God establishes a stronghold against the enemy, against the avenger, and somehow that's related to the cries of the infants and babies. Somehow we'll understand that more fully. A second thing, though, that we have to keep in mind is that as Christians, as part of the New Testament church, we are, in a very real sense, the mouth, the ears, the hands, and the feet of Jesus on earth. That's why we're called the body of Christ. So at times when we maybe throw up our hands in the air and wonder, just in frustration, God, why aren't you doing anything to help out the people who are victimized? Sometimes we might be implicating ourselves to a sense because we are the ones who are supposed to be reaching out to victims. Can we stop a war in Syria? I, probably not. But we can reach out to help its victims. See, the, the great thing that David, I think, is driving home here is that the king of the universe displays his power, displays his strength through the weakest people in our society. The king of the universe displays his power through great weakness. It seems backwards to even say that. Because think about on a human level, how do we operate? Nationally, nations try to align themselves with other nations who have something to offer them. Right, the United States would seek to make a treaty or to be an ally with another nation that can help the United States be stronger. And the nation would be doing that same thing with the United States. Or even a sports team, even little kids on a playground will pick the best kids to be on their team. An NFL team will try to draft the best players to make their team the best. Why? Because they need as much strength as they can get together. Our God is not like that. God's name is majestic in all the earth, partly because there's nothing we can do to add to his strength. There's nothing we can give to God that he is lacking. So God is able to meet the weakest members because it, do, it does nothing to take away from his strength. He already is completely sovereign. He already is completely strong. He has nothing that we need to give him. So he can reach out to the people who are the most downtrodden. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, in verse 3, the scene shifts entirely. It's a totally different scene. We move from babies and infants and calamity to maybe David stepping outside of his tent at night and looking up into the nighttime sky. Now, I had 
I had the good advantage in this area of growing up in, you could say, an isolated part of the country. I'm from the, the northwest corner of Nebraska. So I didn't have a lot of light pollution to deal with, you know what I mean? We didn't even get electricity till last month. That's a joke, by the way. Um, but I can remember going outside at night and just looking up into the sky and being amazed by what I could see on a clear night. It's just so beautiful. I mean, surely you've done this. If you go camping or you, maybe you live out more in, in the country, you can look up into, up into the sky and just be blown away by the scene at night. And that's what David is doing here. He looks up into the nighttime sky, and this is what he says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And we're going to pause right there. When I look up there, and he calls it, the work of your fingers. In the ancient world that David's a part of, it was so common for people to look up into the nighttime sky like he is, but to worship the nighttime sky. They would worship the stars, they would worship the moon, thinking that those are gods that we need to pay homage to. David says, oh no, no, those things? No, no, those are just the works of God's fingers. He just put them there. So instead instead of worshiping the Mona Lisa, David goes to Da Vinci, so to speak, right? You don't, you don't worship the creation, you worship the creator. And that's what David is doing here. When I do that, I'm just blown away, God, by how, how marvelous this creation is that you have made. But you and I, we have so much more reason to be amazed. You can start clicking through those slides, Dennis. This is from the Hubble Space Telescope. You know, technology has given us some absolutely incredible insights into this universe, this galaxy, this solar system that we live in. I mean, think about the magnitude of it. From the sun to the earth, just from the sun to the earth, it's 93 million miles. Or step out from there, not to just our, from our solar system and, and you know, the sun and the nine or eight planets, depending on whether you include poor Pluto, but if you, if you just step out to our galaxy, the Milky Way, if you were to travel from one end of, the, of that galaxy to the other end of the galaxy, it would take 100,000 years, and not in your minivan. It would take 100,000 years traveling at the speed of light. I mean, that puts your summer road trip in perspective, I hope. Or think about it this way, too. There are billions and billions of galaxies out there, scientists tell us now. These are just some images. Go out to the Hubble website and look at these because there are plenty more that I didn't include that are just incredible. Or consider this idea. This is hard kind of to visualize, but um, I have a quarter in this hand. I should have a quarter in this hand, but I forgot to bring it. But if you could take our solar system and shrink it down to the face of this imaginary quarter in my hand, so you have the sun in the middle and all of the planets orbiting around, and it's all shrunk down to the size of this quarter. And if I took the nearest star in our galaxy and I put it on another quarter and whatever planets it might have rotating around it, I would have to put those two quarters. Now, this is the sun and the nearest star. I would have to put those two quarters, two soccer fields apart or two football fields apart in order to depict accurately the scale of how far they actually are from each other. It's called space for a reason. There's a lot of space. We're not running out of space anytime soon. There's plenty of it. But here's where I want to pause. In light of everything I just told you, I want you to talk at your table for a minute. 
How does this make you feel? The Psalms are not something that we just read, but there's something to be experienced. There's something that should make us feel a certain way. I want you to talk just for a couple minutes. How does this make you feel when you consider the magnitude of the universe? And then we'll come back. Go ahead. Okay. Well, here's what David says. I don't know about how it makes you feel to think about these things, but here's how it made David feel. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? What is man that you are mindful of him? That you would even think about him? And son of man that you would care for him? Son of man... Um, only in Daniel 7 is used as a title that's a little bit differently, used talking about Jesus coming. In every other setting of the Old Testament, it more than likely means just another human being. So it's, what is man, who's humanity, that you would think about them, or the son of man, as people that you would care for us? God, if the universe is so vast, if it's so spectacular, how in the world could you care about us? I mean, isn't this an argument you've heard before? I've heard this. You often hear it like, come on, this is a joke. It's like the universe, the more we learn about it, the more it's mocking the idea that God, to some people, would even exist. But if he does exist, that he would give a rip about us. We're here, I mean, the Bible says this. We're like the grass of the field. We're just here today and gone tomorrow. But then just think about the scale. There are billions of galaxies. Our galaxy is just one. Our solar system is just a little obscure part of the galaxy. Our planet is just a speck of dust. And who are we? What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you would care for him? But here's where it gets good. Because where David goes next, don't miss this. In the Hebrew, it's so funny because this is just a little blip. It's just a little beep. And it's translated as yet. Yet. It's one of the most important yets in all of the Bible. David says this, yet. In light of everything, in light of how small and insignificant I feel, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. David, of course, is talking about when he says him, he's talking about human beings. It's representative of us. You have made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. You can think of that as angelic beings. You could even possibly call that God. You've made us a little lower than God. But think about it. He has made us, in spite of all that I just said about how small and insignificant David feels, he's saying, yet. He's going back to that passage that Aaron read at the start. You have created us to be just a little lower than the heavenly beings. Crowned us. Glory 
and honor. You know, up in verse 1, I said that these words like majestic, having a name that's majestic in all the earth, and having your glory above the heavens, that that pointed to the royalty of God, that he is the king of the universe. But what words do we have down here about us? You made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. All of those words are words that you would use to talk about a king. Words that you would use to talk about a queen. He's saying that in spite of how small and insignificant you might feel, you are royal in God's eyes because of who he has made you to be. Incredible. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He has made us to be in this position that seems so out of touch with what we experience. It seems to be so far from how we feel about ourselves at times. But yet, the truth of God's word speaks into this. As the passage in Genesis 1 talks about, we're the only part of God's creation that's said to be created in his image. We're the only part of creation where God says, fill the earth, rule it, subdue it. We're the only part of God's creation that's created to have this special place over the creation. And look at what David says here as he explains that. He says in verse 7, you put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, domesticated animals, all beasts of the field, which are wild animals, the, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. The, the sea in David's day was this place of chaos. It represented danger. It represented something that you would have great fear over. But yet, David is quick to include that in there, to say even the parts that seem chaotic of God's creation, even the parts that invoke fear in us, those are parts that we still exercise dominion over because God has given it to us. And that is the key point. Look again at these verbs that are used here. Verse, um, let's see, verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him. 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. God is the one who is doing this. This isn't anything about me going out and trying to make a name for myself. This is about God making a name for us. You see, the bottom line is it's God who is initiating it all. God's name is majestic in all the earth, and it's by God's grace that he gives great names to those people who follow him. That is what our God does. You know, one thing that's really interesting is that we still want to go after a name for ourselves. We still think that it's really up to us to do that. We don't even realize that God already has a name for us if we will only follow him. And we see what happens with this plenty of times in Scripture. One example I'd like to point out, though, you don't need to turn there. I can, I can just read it. But it's in Genesis 11. If you look at Genesis 11, it's, it's a story that some of you probably know well. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. So the text says this at the start. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and then people migrate together. They come together at one spot, and here's what they say. Then they say, 
Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves. We want to be great. Come on, let's get together. Let's group together and let's build great things together and we will be famous. And you probably know what happens. God sees that. He doesn't argue with their claim that they can make a name for themselves. But what he does is he sees that that is no way to live on his earth. And so he frustrates their plans. He disperses them. He confuses their language so they can no longer come together as easily. But what's really fascinating about this passage is that just a few paragraphs later, in Genesis 12, we see God taking the initiative. And it has to do with a name. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abram up to this point is just an obscure figure. He just barely entered the story um, a few verses earlier. It says this, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is going to make a great name of Abram. And why? Because he is going to bless the world through Abram, through his descendants. And that comes, of course, through none other than Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham. God is taking the initiative to make a great name. God is the one who is in charge of this. The one with the greatest name in all the universe. The one with the most majesty. The one whose glory is above the heavens is the one who is in charge of making names. My friends, I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you, do you want to make a great name for yourself? I hope that if you do, it, it's not in the sense that we were talking about earlier, where you want to somehow be the talk of the town, where you somehow want to be the one who is admired and adored by others. That's, that's what I wanted. That's what I still struggle. I hope that you will realize that God is the one whose name is majestic in all the earth, and that it's only by his grace that he gives the greatest names to the people follow him. So the last question I have is just kind of an open-ended question. It may seem a little abstract, but I would like you, you can go ahead and go to that, Dennis. Um, how is this a cause for celebration? I said earlier that um, the kind of title for these, this next two weeks is Songs of Celebration. This is a song of David. How is this a cause for celebration for you? Again, I know that's kind of abstract. Maybe it's hard to really articulate this right now, but talk about it at your tables for a couple minutes. How is this a cause for celebration for you? It's kind of a derivative of our normal question, of how is this good news? How is this a cause for celebration for you? Go ahead and then we'll, you know the drill. We'll come back in a couple minutes. All right, well, we're, we're going to transition now into a time where we're going to come before the Lord's table. And the worship just continues. Um, the, the author of Hebrews says something that I'd like to 
read with you. In, in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, he's talking about just the supremacy of God's Son. He's talking about how Jesus is higher than any other. But then in verse 2, he talks about how Jesus relates to this psalm that we just read. And he says this, uh, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. He just said that Jesus was higher than the angels. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Jesus is the one who came to this world and was made a little lower. You know, for us, when we, we think about, from our perspective, being made a little lower than the heavenly beings, as Psalm 8 says, we think of that as, like, wow, that is a wild promotion for us. But in this case, Jesus, Son of God, God himself, the creator and king of the universe, subjected himself to humanity, becoming a little lower than the angels for a period of time. And why did he do that? If you read on, it says so, so that he would bring many sons to glory. See, Jesus is the one who has made all of this possible. When we read Psalm 8, I think it's, it's natural for us to say, it sure doesn't seem like God's name is majestic in all the earth. It sure doesn't seem like his glory is filling every square inch of the universe. It sure doesn't seem like I am in this lofty place that Genesis claims I'm in. It sure doesn't seem like I could be ascribed terms that are fitting for a king or a queen. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, through his life, through his suffering, through his death, and through his resurrection, you and I know that we have a hope to look forward to, don't we? We know that as we come to the table, we celebrate that. If you are a Christian this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I would like to invite you to come up on your own as you see fit and partake of the bread, partake of the juice, and we will worship in this time and celebrating God's majestic name that fills all of the earth.